You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. And I also want to issue a good morning and a welcome. We're glad that you're here. I know it's raining. I know it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers or who have fathers. Happy Father's Day. We're delighted that you're here in the middle of June. I'm going to invite you, if you would, to go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you've got them handy, and turn to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Spirit, and in chapter 17, where we're going to look at one of the encounters and engagements of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is going to quote in Acts 17 an ancient author, ancient to Paul already. And so, I feel like that's a pretty good teaching method and mechanism, so I'm also going to begin this morning to get our minds wrapped around this topic. I'm also going to quote an old author. This comes from 1954, one of the great theologians of the 20th century. His name is Theodore Geisel, and Theodore Geisel produced this masterwork for Father's Day. Perhaps you remember it. It's called Horton Hears a Who. Theodore Seuss Geisel, also known as Dr. Seuss. And in 1954, the book opens thus. On the 15th of May, in the jungle of Newell, in the heat of the day, in the cool of the pool, he was splashing, enjoying the jungle's great joys, when Horton the elephant heard a small noise. So Horton stopped splashing. He looked toward the sound. That's funny, thought Horton. There's no one around. Then he heard it again. Just a very faint yelp, as if some tiny person were calling for help. I'll help you, said Horton. But who are you? Where? He looked and he looked. He could see nothing there but a small speck of dust blowing past through the air. I say, murmured Horton, I've never heard tell of a small speck of dust that is able to yell. So you know what I think? Why, I think that there must be someone on top of that small speck of dust, some sort of creature of a very small size, too small to be seen by an elephant's eyes, some poor little person who's shaking with fear that he'll blow in the pool. He has no way to steer. I'll just have to save him because, after all, a person's a person, no matter how small. Very good words from Theodore Geisel. A very interesting construct that Dr. Seuss created. Because you see, Dr. Seuss loved people. Dr. Seuss was so enamored by people that he actually created this entire sort of world called Whoville. Dr. Seuss used to talk about that the whole world was concerned and consumed with what's. But what he was most interested in was who's. Because he said, Whoville has a who at the center not a what. The more we learn, the more we see the gospel being proclaimed in all sorts of means. See, I like this. Whoville is very different than whatville. And I thought about this week, and it occurred to me that Christianity really is a whoville faith in a whatville world. Let me say it again. Christianity is a whoville faith in a whatville world. And so this morning, as we study our attributes of God, We're getting introduced, probably, hopefully, more closely acquainted with the who at the center of Whoville. So, 
Since May of this year, we've been looking at these different attributes of God. And I should say that these attributes historically, classically, have been sort of broken into two categories. When we think about the attributes of God, it's just the aspects of what God is, what God is like. There are two different categories of attributes of God. There are communicable attributes, and just as it sounds, communicable attributes are things about God that he also shares with us, that we resemble, that we reflect, that we possess. For example, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. You and I are clearly not all-powerful, but we do have some power. We do have some capacity and some capability. So God's omnipotence, He shares with us it is a communicable attribute. God is love. Now, we are not love to the extent that God is, of course, but we share in that capacity. We reflect that. We resemble that. We are able to enjoy and experience love. And then there are attributes that are incommunicable. These are things that are about God that only God possesses and God alone has them. He does not share with us. For example, God is omnipresent. It's not that God is everywhere. That's not enough. It's that there is nowhere where God is not. We do not share in that incommunicable attribute of God. And so this morning, we're going to discuss another of God's incommunicable attributes. And I'm pretty sure we're probably the only church in the Western Hemisphere this morning that is going to talk about the incommunicable attribute known as aseity. Yeah, that's right. Aseity. It's spelled A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It comes from a Latin word. A means from, se means self. Aseity means from itself. God is from himself. Aseity, from himself. In other words, aseity, you might put it this way, aseity is from itselfedness. I feel like this is Father's Day. A lot of dads get the question, well, wait a minute. If there's a God, uh, then who is God's daddy? I remember both of my sons asking me. And while that's a cute question, and it actually demonstrates that there is some processing and some cognitive thinking about God, well, if God is so big and great and awesome, then where did he come from? There must be something even greater. No, actually, aseity means that God is from himself. Let me define it formally this way my own little definition of a seity. It goes like this. God is in no way a contingent being. In other words, he is the only absolutely independent being. His existence and well-being is not dependent upon any being or circumstance. He is the final and primary cause of all things. Therefore, there is no cause that precedes him. He is in need of nothing. He is a seatus. He is from himself. Nothing precedes him. Nothing is required for him to exist in perfect community of love. Now, thinking that way about God is actually critically important for us. All of us think too little about God at one level or infrequently about God at one level. But we want to think of our God as a seatus. He is from himself. What we're going to come to see this morning through our text in Acts 17 is our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. God is not additive. He is absolute. God is not additive. He is absolute. In other words, you might sort of subtitle it. God is no accessory. He is not additive. He is absolute. And all of us, every single person in this room, me first, 
could use a little bit more clear understanding and application of that into our lives. So we're in the book of Acts chapter 17. Let me just very quickly bring you up to speed of what's going on in the Acts of the Spirit. Remember, Luke writes the book of Acts. It's actually the second volume of his two-volume set. There is the Gospel of Luke, that is the birth of the Christ. There is the book of Acts, the birth of the church. They are supposed to go back-to-back, side-by-side. So far, Luke has taken us through one full-blown missionary journey. We now find ourselves in chapter 17 in the second missionary journey that the Apostle Paul takes. He's left Syrian Antioch, he has sailed to what is today modern Turkey, and he tries to go west to Ephesus, but the Spirit of God says no. He tries then to go to the northeast, to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus says no. What does Paul do? He takes a nap. He falls asleep. He has a vision. Somebody from Europe says, hey, please come over here and help us. Paul goes to Europe. The church lands in Western civilization. By chapter 16, we find Paul in Philippi. He plants the very first church in Western civilization, Western society, through a a suicidal civil servant, a wealthy fashionista, and a demon-possessed slave girl. The very first Three converts in Western civilization are those three. He leaves Philippi after about 10 days. He goes to Thessalonica. He gets beat up and driven out of town. Fine. He goes to Berea. The people of Berea were slightly more noble. They looked into the scriptures themselves. But the people from Thessalonica, they came and chased him out of Thessalonica. And so Paul has to go all the way down to Athens. He sails down to Athens. Now, you and I hear Athens in the 21st century. think, ooh, Athens, that'd be fun. I'd love to go and visit Athens. Paul was not there on vacation. He was not there on a pleasure trip. He was escaping for his life. We find Paul in Athens for the first time all by himself. He had been traveling with Luke and with Timothy and with Silas, but because of all the kerfuffles happening in these different places that he had visited, he has to sail to Athens all by himself, and it's not good for him to be alone. So we're going to pick up, I'm going to read Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter, and then we'll see if we can unpack this briefly. Verse 16 of Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke, At Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? That's kind of awesome. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. This is the story of Paul's second missionary journey as he finds himself all the way down in Athens. The proclaimer of the heart of Whoville has found himself in the biggest whatville in the world. He walks into Athens and all he sees is idol after idol after idol, statue after monument after altar to this different pantheon of different gods. God moves in Paul, moves him to Whatville, and the proclaimer of Whoville, he just can't take it anymore. It says that he is provoked. Uh, the word is where we get our word for paroxysm or seizure. I'm not a doctor, but I suspect a paroxysm or a seizure is very, very bad. Paul has that kind of reaction. He's not walking around going, this is just so lovely. I wonder where they quarried all this lovely white marble. No, he knows. He knows the heart of Whoville. And all he sees are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people on an adventure and missing the point, focusing on the what's and missing the who. So he is moved. He goes to the Agora. Now it's hard for us to fully understand the Agora. If you've been to Rome, perhaps you've seen the Forum. That's the Latin word for Agora. The Agora is where society and culture are made in ancient Western civilization. It's the mall, three stories high usually, that has all the different wares and goods being sold throughout the entire region. It's the seat of government. It's like City Hall and the mall and... Uh, also, all of law enforcement. Everything comes together in the Agora or the Forum in the center of the city. Paul moves right into the heart and the hub of humankind of Athens. And what does he begin to do? Lash people with cat and nine tails and throw over tables? No. He begins dialogue and discourse. By the way, we have always said we are fiercely focused on trying to follow the model of the Apostle Paul in the center of the city, facilitating conversation, facilitating dialogue and discussion right in the center of the city where the crossroads of culture and the community come together. We get that largely from what Paul does in Athens. Now he sees all of this idolatry. What is an idol? An idol is merely um, a tip or a trick, or a, or a trigger to facilitate false worship. It just helps us to think the sun, the moon, the stars, statues, temples, gods, goddesses. Maybe it's a hero, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a legend. Maybe in our 21st century context, it's security. 
comfort, ease, money, our career, our house, our family, our marriage, our children. It's not the worst things in life that become idols. It's not that way. What Paul sees represented is very indicative of the same kind of things that we experience in our day and time here and now. It's not the worst things in life that torpedo our faith. It usually isn't that. It's the good things that we hold up as the best things. That's when we become dangerously close to idol worship. So Paul ultimately garners the attention of two different kinds of philosophers in ancient Greece. Now, we might hear that and go, well, it's ancient Greece, times they have a changed. Actually, not at all. The two different kinds of schools of thought that Paul encounters are the Epicureans and the Stoics. Let me know if this sounds familiar to you. The Epicureans were, well, how should we say this? These folks were very similar to what we would call liberal in our day, sort of academically, intellectually advanced. They weren't really sure that there really was a divine world. Probably not. There might be, but really humans were the top of the food chain. Human beings were the most superior being, and because there probably wasn't a divine realm with these gods, the most important thing that you could do if you were Epicurean was to pursue pleasure at all costs because everything else wasn't going to last. Life was about maximizing pleasure and making the best of all things. Live fully while you can. If there's a problem, yo, we'll solve it. That's the Epicurean mindset. Then we had the Stoics. The Stoics were a little bit different. We might think of the Stoics in our day and age as conservatives. Conservatives, these folks believed that the divine world did in fact exist. And so the important thing was to limit passion, to limit pain, to limit pleasure. You might remember the old poem, Invictus. No matter what happens, I'm going to get knocked down, but I'm going to purge through with a stiff upper lip. I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. That is a stoic mentality. They did believe in the existence of the divine realm, but they believed that their behavior obligated the gods or God to their requirements they believed that their morality would what would cause god to act on their behalf so we have the epicureans that were sort of the liberal just loosey-goosies out there we have the stoics that were sort of the fighting fundamentalists the fuddy-duddies who were very conservative and stodgy and both of these groups of people hear paul speaking and so they take him to the areopagus that literally means hill of mars to the hill of Mars. This is not just an arena for philosophy. This is also actually where culture and society are cemented and they are concreted. In fact, 400 years prior to this, Socrates comes and he begins to, disp- to discuss and dispense some new philosophies and he begins to question the deities of the day. And they say, we are not permitted to hear this. And they force Socrates to drink hemlock in this exact spot, in the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Athens. Which is why when they bring Paul, probably not by force, they hear him talking, they bring him to Mars Hill and they say, are we permitted to hear this teaching? Because 400 years prior, Socrates was not permitted to dispense that teaching and he was sentenced to death. And they say, what is this babbler? What is this idle babbler trying to say? It's it's a term of derision. 
They say, what is this word spreader? Literally, it's a word spreader. It's a, it's a, it's a cut down. It's a gutter sparrow. Just a little bird who flitters around, picking off little seeds, scavenging from others because he doesn't have an original idea of his own. So these elitist philosophers say, what is this little, this little gutter sparrow trying to say? Why is he speaking to us? And then Luke says there in verse 21, all they wanted to do all the time was sit around and talk about things that are new. But that's Luke being sarcastic because they didn't want to talk about new things. All they wanted to talk about were old things and the old ways and the way things should be and used to be. So now let me unpack Paul's sermon beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He doesn't start angrily or accusatorily. He's very uh, complimentary of them. He's been observing. He's been watching. He's been listening. He's been noticing. He's been analyzing. So that when he gets his shot to speak, he is ready to speak. Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. What is religion? Religion is nothing more than the organizing narrative of your life. What's your story? I mean, what's your story really? That's your religion. If your story is, I believe that I have to be good and do this so that God will honor me and bless me, that's your religion. And it'll never pan out. Or if your story, your religion is, I'm just going to get what's mine. I'm going to live to the fullest. It's better to burn out than to fade away. That's your story. By the way, that too will never work out. So what is your organizing narrative? What's your story really? Paul says, I see that you all are living according to an organizing narrative because, by the way, everybody is. This is Paul brilliantly entering into a discourse that's going to heart hook every single one of his hearers. Paul is inspired by the Spirit as he has this conversation. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now what's Paul doing here? What's what's he talking about? Well, Paul has realized that everywhere you look, there's an altar, there's a temple, there's a statue, there's a something. Once a year in ancient Athens, the priests of the various different temples would take a sheep and they would fatally wound this sheep in the neck. And then they would just set it loose in Athens. That's a weird day. We do not do that in downtown Tyler for the last, I don't know, six or seven years. We totally quit that. It got messy. It was bad. They would fatally wound a sheep and stabbing it in the neck. And this sheep would take off bleeding and bleating. And finally, it would die. It would run out of blood and it would keel over and it would die. And wherever the sheep died, if it happened to die next to an altar or a statue or a temple of an existing God, they would say, ah, obviously that God desires sacrifice. That God desires worship. And so the city would flock there and they would have all sorts of festivals and what have you. But every now and then, whoops, that darn pesky sheep would die where he wasn't supposed to. He would just die out in the open where there was no temple or altar or statue. And so just to hedge their bets, they would set up a statue that said to the unknown God. Like, we don't know who this is, but obviously somebody wanted this sheep to die right here. So now we're going to set up a new one and we're going to flock here and worship. And so the city was littered with these kinds of things. Paul uses the context of his surroundings 
to discuss and to dispense and to deliver the gospel. This is a very good practice for us to follow. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul is simply going to explain and discuss and describe God. He's going to use the attributes of God to explain this God. And he's going to say something pretty amazing. In the midst of all of the what's, Paul is going to describe the who. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul's going to say, listen, you've assumed that they are distant, they are disinterested, that they are far off, but I want you to know the who of Whoville, that he created time and space and matter. Paul's doing deep Greek theology here. May not sound like it to us, but Paul's doing brilliant, deep Greek theology here. The Lord, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He introduces them to the who. He is the one who has made all that there is. He does not live in things made by human hands. He essentially says he made time and space and matter. And so therefore, by definition, philosophically, he is not constrained by any time nor space nor matter. The heavens declare the glory of God. And Paul's going to go on and say we are made in his image. Not the other way around. You have made all of these images in your image but we're actually made in his image you see he is from himself he's not from us he's not our idea and paul does great theology he is the creator this god of time and space and matter and paul even uses time he says that god is the lord of as creator he's transcendent he is from the past eternity past god is redeemer he is imminent he is present he is now God is a coming judge, we'll find out in just a moment. He is in the future. It is a who that will judge, not a what, not a statue, not a law, not an idea, not a, not a, a religious construct. It is a who, it is a person. Nor is he served, verse 25, by human hands as though he needed anything. He is aseatus. He is from himself. He has no need of anything. God says in the Psalms, I have a cattle on a thousand hills. I have need of nothing. And by the way, if I was hungry, <laughs> I wouldn't tell you. There's nothing you have that I need. Now that's interesting. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the origin and the giver of life himself. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Ah, so Paul is now doing biblical anthropology. All of us come from one forefather, that's Adam, and it's all God's sovereign design. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, you are who and where and when you are because of God's divine sovereign plan of grace. What is his sovereign divine plan of grace? Verse 27, central passage. Why did God make me? Why did God create you? Acts 17, 27. That they should seek God. Ecclesiastes 3. God has planted eternity in the heart of every single human being. Even the one that you're thinking about right now who seems utterly godless and disinterested in the things of the spirit world. God has placed eternity in their hearts. That they should seek Him. 
and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. You see, God has made us for Himself. We are restless until we find ourselves in Him. God has created us to be dwellers of Whoville, but the fall of sin has caused us to settle for Whatville, as if it will do, and it never will and to find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He's addressing both the Epicureans and the Stoics. He's not disinterested. He's not detached. He is very near. And he has a plan and he has a purpose. For in him we live and move and have our being. I love this. Paul quotes Epimenides, an ancient Cretan poet, using the literature and the lore of their day to say, listen, God's even active in communicating in that context. For in him we move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He quotes another Greek poet named Aratus. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, 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 no. We are to understand that we come from him. He comes from himself. He is a seatus. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to rethink their thinking. Metanoia, change mind. I used to think this about God. I used to think this about religion. I used to think this about life and success and how things go well for me. I used to think this about Jesus, but now I turn. I rethink my thinking so that my thinking gets rethunk. That's repentance. I think differently now because what we think about when we think about God and all that comes with that is the most important thing about us. God was gracious. He was patient. He was kind and merciful, compassionate. But Paul says a new age has dawned. He holds people responsible because he has revealed the truth to them. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. This man, who is, by the way, also God, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And right there, the record scratches on Mars Hill. What Paul says, where he says it, when he says it, to whom he says it, is the final straw. See, the Areopagus was actually founded 400 years plus prior by a Greek playwright who wrote that Apollo himself had founded Mars Hill, the Areopagus, as the place of society and culture and ideas. And that Apollo himself had said, this is where we will know, right here. And once a man dies, his blood is spilled on the earth and he shall never live again. Their own lore, four centuries of the making, apparently and allegedly spoken by Apollo, said there is no such thing as resurrection. Once you die, you're done. But Paul stands in the Areopagus under God's sovereign plan and says, oh no, no, the resurrection, there is a man. He is alive. He is the one aspect of creation that has actually been set right. In fact, as N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians says, the risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe that has already been set right. So what does he tell these people? 
I want you to rethink your thinking. You're wrong about resurrection and what death and life looks like. So I am inviting you to turn from all of this worthless what. And I'm inviting you to turn to the mayor of Whoville, as it were. Turn from all of the what's and turn to the who. Seek him and see if what I said does not bear out, Paul says. Well, that pretty well tears it. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Wait a minute, wait a minute, that, that, that certainly cannot be. The resurrection, they weren't really sure what he was talking about. Jesus and the Anastasias, they thought he was talking about Jesus and his consort and his date and his lady. Paul says, no, 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 I'm talking about one who is alive, who was dead, but is alive again and is forevermore. Others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul just like Peter in Acts chapter 2, has thousands of people come to him and they're com- No, it doesn't work out that way. Paul just leaves. We don't know how this goes in Athens. We're told by Luke that Paul had started off in Athens going to the synagogue, reasoning there. We have no idea how that goes. If there are any converts, we don't know if people got mad at him and beat him up. We have no idea because that's not Luke's point. Luke 17 is about turning from whatville and residing in whoville. That God is not additive, he is absolute. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. He just leaves before he heads down to Corinth. But some men, these little flickers in the darkness, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, which is interesting, that's the name of a Greek god. But this guy, Dionysius, was actually a member of the Areopagite Council. He's one of the uppity-ups. He's an up, but out. And Paul never had any problem talking to those kinds of people. The Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believed, and that's all we know. Who do you say that I am? It reminds me of Jesus himself with his disciples way up in the north in Caesarea Philippi. He turns to his disciples in the middle of whatville. And Caesarea Philippi was like the Athens of the Middle East that had all of the idols, all of the statues, all of the temples, all of the altars. And in the midst of all that, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? He does not try to deconstruct the error of all of the other faith constructs. By the way, don't do that. That's just, you're wasting your time. You're spinning your wheels in quicksand. Jesus doesn't try to undo it, neither does Paul. He just draws attention to who God is. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter at least gets this one right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's right. Paul wants us to know that God is not additive. He is absolute. So, in our Attributes of God series, we're talking about aseity. God is not additive. He is absolute. Let me just give three very quick implications of how I think this should impact every one of our lives. Number one, our idea of God is too small. I don't mean an orthodox Christianity. I mean all of us functionally, walking around, literally, probably, our idea of God is too small. Most of us, if we're honest, have either tried the Epicurean or the Stoic approach. On my bad days, I'm full Epicurean. I just want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. I just kind of need God to kick in every now and then to, you know, to give me a nudge and a boost. Or, if it's to be, it's up to me. I'm just going to mindlessly go through my day on autopilot stoically. And I find that neither one of those strategies actually work. We sort of 
have a tendency functionally to keep a God-shaped get-out-of-problems-free card that we want to keep handy just in case. But for the most part, we just want to be left alone, happy, independent. Or we've assumed that there is something or someone out there and I have got to do a whole bunch of stuff to obligate him to give me a boost or a nudge. Problem is, neither of those systems will ever, ever work because that kind of a God does not exist. And we'll always find ourselves frustrated. They will always let you down. Our idea of God is too small. We are to think of him as absolute, not an accessory, not additive. Second point, (laughs) our hearts are idol factories. We can make an idol out of anything. And again, it's not the bad stuff usually. It's the really good stuff that we elevate to be the best stuff. Many of us had set things up that matter so deeply to us that they become idols. I've quoted this a lot because it's personally impactful and it's convicting from Tim Keller. He says, all of us have something in our lives that if we lost it, we would think, I don't want to live anymore. Whatever that is in your life, there's something that you thought, if I lost that, I couldn't go on, that's your idol. And don't be surprised when God begins to flick that over anything that you feel like defines you that gives you meaning is an idol that you have set up for yourself that's what the greeks did aries was for war athena was for wisdom artemis was for fertility apollo was for music and art whatever little god you have set up your marriage your career your looks your health your wealth whatever it might be it's always going to let you down keller goes on and he says those other gods if you fail them They will never forgive you. And if you get them, they will never fulfill you. So be careful what you set at the center of your Whoville. Third point goes like this. God is from himself, but for us. That's astonishing. That's the gospel. This infinite, eternal, utter, aseatist being. But it's right here in this text. His design is that people seek for him and that they also find him. And he sets himself right in the center of the world because he is the only being that he knows can support that sort of role, that pressure, that burden, and that responsibility. This ultimate, eternal, infinite, aseatous God also desperately wants, does not need, but wants to have communal relationship, proximity, familiarity, time with this created people. He's in need of nothing, yet he wants to be in relation with every single one of us. That's really good news. So what else does this text tell us when we think of God in this way? What we see is three different reactions to the truth that God is, that he is not additive, he is absolute. We can receive and believe like Dionysius and Damaris and a few others, or we can try to procrastinate and say, we'll talk to you later about this. Yada, 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 I'm busy, i got stuff to do. I'll talk to you when I've, my kids are out of the house or when I'm out of college or when I've finished with this project. I'm not going to think about that right now. So you can receive and believe, you can procrastinate, or you can utterly reject. But my heart in thinking of all of us this week in preparation for this passage was that all of us, whether we're believers or not, If we're not believers, we'll rethink our thinking. We will receive and we will believe. Or if we are believers, we will allow our thinking about God to expand and increase, that we will think ever rightly, feel more deeply about this God because he's worth it. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for today, for this word, for your people and for your spirit.
And Father, I do pray that you will reveal to us by your Spirit all of the things, all of the crutches that we have relied on, all of the things that we use as supports that are not you. I confess, God, that I am a person that tends to walk by sight and feel and sound rather than by faith. But I pray, God, that you will use this text to increase my right thinking about you, that I will walk by faith, that you will not be an additive accessory to my life, but you will be the absolute North Star, the thing that is at the center, the one who is at the center of all that I am. And I pray that for all of these gathered as well. Father, if there are some this morning that do not know you, I pray that you will move by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus, that they will step out of Whatville and come to know the center of Whoville. God, we love you because you loved us first. You determined our lives that we might find you. So may it be, God. We pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.